Please uh, join me as I, as I read the scriptures. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shredding, shedding your blood. And have you complete, completely forgotten his word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as, as his children. For what children, are, for what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respect them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. There are famous words, aren't there, of uh, Lawrence Bynan, who composed his poem. It's argued whether it's uh, to the north or south of Polzeath on the north coast of Cornwall, but it became so famous it was published in the Times of London just a few weeks later. Uh, he said that the four lines that we know so well from the fourth stanza came to him first. But before I read you those, verse, those words that are so familiar to us, let me remind you of a few other words from this lovely piece of poetry. With proud thanksgiving, a mother for her children, England mourns for her dead across the sea. Flesh of her flesh they were, spirit of her spirit, fallen in the cause of the free. They went with songs to the battle. They were young, straight of limb, true of eye, steady and aglow. They were staunch to the end against odds uncounted. They fell with their faces to the foe. And then the famous words, they shall not grow old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn at the going down of the sun and in the morning. We will remember them. Let's pray again. Father, there's a deep poignancy to a minute's silence in the busyness of life. 
when millions of heads will be bowed and millions of lips will be shut. And then the silence is ended with a trumpet sound of victory, so to speak. We thank you so much for the freedom that we take so freely, well, so readily for granted. And we are so sorry that we have lost, in many sense, the debt that we owe to so few. Forgive us, Lord. And we pray again for those that are left behind, for those with empty chairs, for those for whom today is not a day just of remembrance, but a day of tears. We remember them, and we thank you for all of those who've gone forth across the seas, in the air, across the land, people who were indeed strong of limb, people who were resolute, people who were fearful but went anyway. We thank you for them. We thank you for peace that we enjoy. We thank you for the government that we have. And we pray, please, that you accept our thanks for them. But also help us to remember on this day when the crosses that stand so white on the uh, shores of Normandy and in Germany and in Belgium and in Italy and in other places where blood has been spilled. We thank you for the cross that points us to the Lord Jesus. May our eyes and our hearts be consumed with remembrance of what he has done for us, not just one day, a year, but every day. Amen. Amen. I want to spend some time, as we do every week, looking at the Bible. And I want us to look at these verses. You can find it on your service sheet. As always, we say, because we mean it, please have it on your lap so we can look at this passage together. But I want to remind you of a few thoughts from Stephen Ambrose. Stephen Ambrose is a marvelous war historian, a military historian. He has written about uh, a meter's worth of books, if not more. You have to measure it by length. He's written so many books on World War II, a wonderful book on Pegasus Bridge and the uh, heroics that went on securing that. But perhaps his most famous book was turned 15 or so years ago into a TV program. It's called Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers uh, follows a fictional account, I think, of Easy Company. Easy Company are a group of American soldiers who get trained in episode one of Band of Brothers by a drill sergeant who is their worst nightmare. He's called Mr. Sobel, Captain Sobel. He wants to produce the crack core of troops who will be utterly prepared for going out into all that they will face when they travel from America to England for war games in sunny Kent and before they get on the plane and go from Kent to the northern shores of France. He wants them to be prepared for what lies ahead. And so, there is military precision at every turn. The uniform is inspected at the most inconvenience of times. There is marching, morning, noon and especially at night. There is physical training like you've never seen it before. We're talking press-ups in the mud crawling underneath uh, barbed wire, up difficult structures to get over. And that's before I mention the running. If you've seen the program, the first uh, episode is called Kurahi. Outside of the military camp where all of this uh, training goes on, there is Kurahi, which is a steep hill that at just the name from Captain Sobel, Kurahi is shouted, the men drop absolutely everything and run as quick as they can, not individually but as a crack core team of people from the bottom to the top and back down again. And if he says twice, 
they go twice. Whether they are vomiting because of such exertion, where they're just about to tuck into their spaghetti like there is in the first episode, they drop everything in the mess house and they run. Because Captain Sobel has said so. And you always do what your superior officer said so, or so I'm told. Because he wants to train them, and he wants to train them well. Now there is some link to the book of Hebrews. We've been looking at it for quite a while, and we've seen that it's not physical warfare, but there is spiritual warfare going on. And this letter is written as a piece of pastoral counselling to train and to equip Christians who are struggling. And there's two different metaphors in these first 12 or 13 verses of a race and, and of a gymnasium that I want us to look at together. How are you going to cope with the brutal realities of war? You need to go and train. And sometimes even that has its own limits. But how are you going to cope with the difficulties of life that each one of us will face? You need to go into training. And here are the three things. Point number one. The first image from verse uh, 1 to 4 is that life is a race. Life is a race, and so we need to get equipped. Point number one, life is a race. Now, where do we get that from? Look at verses 1 to 4, and also look at down at verse 11, sentence 11, and it says in verses 1 to 4, let us run. Let us run. Let us run the race marked out for us. Now they say if you're fortunate enough to learn Greek, it's like your underpants. You always keep them on, but you don't show anyone. But I want to show you one or two Greek words today because they add to our understanding of what is being said here. They add to the richness. The word here is agon. Agon, from which we get the word agony, pain, endurance. Agon, it's there in uh, the first sentence, but also in verse 11 as well. Verse 4 it says... In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. It's an agonizing struggle. It's pain. It's sweat. It's heat. It's hardship. It's difficulty. It's, it's like a marathon race, but it's not just a race. It's even more difficult than that. It's an agonizing struggle. And so if you read the people with bigger brains than I've got, and that's not hard, who comment on this passage, they say... Actually, this idea of agonizing struggle, it's not just running in a straight line to a finishing line. It's a bit more like a pentathlon. Now, the pentathlon, in the old uh, way of running the Olympics, was the last and the ultimate, the final event. So there was the discus, there was running, there was uh, jumping, there was javelin. But last of all, you would have opponents who would wrap a strong, thick leather around their knuckles to protect their own knuckles, but to do damage to the person they were fighting. That was part of the old pentathlon. It was a brutal, agonizing struggle where you tried to beat your opponent and to protect yourself as the last of five disciplines. And the writer is saying to Christians who are struggling, life is a race, but it's not just a race, it's a it's an agonizing struggle where you're going to face difficulty, you're going to face opposition, you're going to face suffering, and it's not just going to be a race you're running by your side, you're going to be with other people, and it's going to be difficult for you. It's going to be warlike. There's going to be a range of difficulties that you're going to face, a range of not just disciplines, but it's going to be really, really hard at stages of life. Verse 11, therefore, says... 
No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. And later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained. There's the word again, trained by it. If it's not just a race, if it's not just agonizing difficulty, this word train from verse 11, that's a, that's a gymnastic word. It's the word literally gymnasio, from which you, you can guess from that what it's going to lead to. Gymnastics, gymnasium, it's physical training. Now I had to go a long way back in my memory to remember the last time I did some of this. So I think when you do dumbbells, there gets a point when you start to get hot on the cheeks. Yep. If you're a member of David Lloyd, you can instruct me later. But you get hot on the cheeks, and then after the hot on the cheeks, you start to sweat. And then if it's dumbbells or free weights or rowing machine, you go through those two stages. And then if you keep going through the agon, the agonizing struggle part, through to the gymnasio, the gymnastics stage, your arms can start to feel a little bit like spaghetti whether you're doing that or that, tells you how long it is. I can't remember which one you do. But whatever you're doing in gymnastics, whatever you're doing in physical exertion, you start off like the hard spaghetti, yeah, I'm okay, and then if you get through the hot and the sweaty, and then the spaghetti gets a bit limp, it gets a bit weak. And the trouble is, you feel like you're out of control. But when you grasp this, the fact that you're in gymnasio, the fact that you're in this agonizing struggle, you understand a little bit more of the richness of this passage, that life is a race, and it's hard, and it's difficult. And from that, you need to understand a couple of things. Because the metaphor is so rich that without it, we're going to be in trouble. Here are two things I think you learn from this gymnasio and from this agonizing struggle of life. The Bible is so realistic, don't you see that? Here are two things. First of all, these sufferings are in some way necessary for our good. And this is a hard word to hear if you're a Christian. If you're not yet a Christian, it's maybe even harder. What do I mean? This passage is saying physical exercise is necessary to make your muscles work hard. But in some way, the struggles and trials that God leads, leads us into are for our ultimate good, even if we cannot see it when you're in the midst of them. And so that poignant song that we just sung from the pen of John Newton, well, he also wrote these sentences to a lady who was in deep distress and struggling. John Newton said, Everything is necessary that he, God, everything is necessary that God sends in the race in the pentathlon of life. Everything is necessary that God sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Everything that comes into your life is necessary. Nothing can be necessary that does not come into your life. Now that is a hard sentence to agree with. If you disagree with it, let me explore it with you. Back to gymnasio, back to the gymnasium. There are those stages, aren't they, whether you're running for training for a marathon, whether you're equipping yourself for uh, a different discipline like cycling a long distance, that you go red at the cheeks, you start to go sweaty, and then either you keep going through the agony or you stop. But I think I remember far enough back to when I used to do exercise that the point of exercise is opposition. If you go to the doctors when you're older, they'll say, 
you need to lose a few pounds, you need to do a little bit more exercise. Because if you don't do exercise, if you don't provide opposition for your muscle groups, they won't be functioning when you're older. They won't be working how you want. Muscles need a bit of stress, a bit of opposition, a bit of weight against them. They need to be able to be made to feel weak, and when they are weak, actually they get stronger. That's how exercise works. If you quit as soon as the first bead of sweat comes down you, if you are someone who hates sweat and hates getting muddy or dirty, you won't do that well when it comes to exercise, and your muscles won't get that strong. But to become strong, they need to feel weak, like spaghetti. They need to have a bit of stress exerted on them. Physical exercise, you see, needs opposition. And that sentence from John Newton and this principle of God leading us into difficulty and struggle for our good as a loving father that we'll look at in a minute, this is a hard word to hear. But Newton is onto something. Everything is necessary that God sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. So let's earth this. Christian friend, your faith will never grow unless it's tested. Your commitment will never grow unless it's threatened. Your patience will never grow unless it's taxed. Should have been in our house yesterday. These are some of the things that you learn. When it comes to exercise, you need to have your muscles put under stress and duress and opposition so that they feel weak, but so that they can grow in strength. And that's why suffering, and this is a hard word, is necessary for growth. That's why God leads us into suffering and is with us in it. If you do not struggle, if you do not go to the gymnasia of life, if you do not persevere when agony comes into your life, you will be an immature person and your faith muscle, if you're a Christian, will be weak. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing we learn. It is the strength in weakness principle, the strength in weakness. We've said it already, but when you are weak, then actually you are strong. You may not feel it at the time, but when you are rowing and you get to 1,500 metres and you're trying to be Sir Steve Redgrave, but you're not, and you feel like quitting and you realise that if you just knock the resistance bar down on the side, all will be well in your life, but you don't do it because you want the muscles to grow, you feel so weak, but you know in the weakness you will be strong because your muscles are getting stronger through the pain. That's how faith grows. That's how life equips us, or God equips us through the difficulties of life so that our muscles can grow. The stronger you are getting, well, that means that you've suffered. The more grey hairs you have, not always, but in all probability, the more grey hairs you've had, <coughs> the stronger your faith muscle could be or should be. Because God leads his people into difficulty and suffering for our good. And that's a hard bit of biblical teaching. It's about expectations, you see. One of the problems with the modern generation, mine and mine below, we're not like the old guard. They are cut from different cloth. They persevered, they endured. It's not about comfort, it's about commitment, it's about sacrifice. For my generation, for the generation beneath us, it's about our rights, it's about being a victim, it's about comfort, not commitment. It's about expectations, but the Bible presents a view of the world where God is good 
and as a good father, he loves us and will never do us harm, but will lead us into suffering for our good and growth. That's how it works. And it's about going into suffering, facing difficulty, going into the pentathlon of life with God as our friend, king, our shepherd, and as our lover, knowing that he will do us good. But often that's through the past way of suffering. We're in a race. That's verses 1 to 4 and 11. But look at verses 5 to 10. Why should you be running the race? We're in a race, but why should you be running? Verses 5 to 10 tell us it's to do with our mind. It's to do with our motivation. It tells us why to run. And here, the author changes metaphor from the running the gymnasium to parenting and to fatherhood. It begins in verse 5, talking about the son and the father. You may have picked that up, talking about discipline that never, never, never is pleasant at the time. But we know, if our mum and dad are for us, that it will do us good in the long run. It's one more Greek word. It's pedia from where we get pediatrics, where we get pediatrician. A doctor who is uh, in charge of our over-well-being or our overarching care of childhood. They're not just concerned with if our lungs work or if our blood work is right. They're in, in charge and concerned with our whole well-being. That's pediatric care. They may get help from other people, but pediatrics is the field, field of overarching care. That's the, the idea behind this word. It's Overall, healthy flourishing of children. Because when you're... I mean, why does the metaphor change? That's what I scratched my head on this week. Why does it change from the coach? You know, keep fixing your eyes on Jesus as you run. Keep working hard. Go through agony at the gymnasium. Why does it change to the father? I think it's this. When you're on the battlefield, or let's be more honest, when you're in the trenches of modern life, you don't want to understand God as a coach who just says, keep going, keep working hard, keep going. You need to know that God's your father when you're suffering. You don't need to know he's your coach. I think you need to know he's your father. And so here, in verse 10, is where it begins. You get this idea of discipline with a loving purpose. Verse 10, our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. There was uh, an incident in our house yesterday. Uh, I sought to do my best. I didn't do that well. But you can ask any one of our children, and they'll probably say, well, Dad did his best. Well, all we can do as human fathers is to do our best if God blesses us with children. It's the same with motherhood as well. Verse 10 speaks to that reality. We only discipline our children for a short period of time. We do the best we can. We make mistakes every single day. But God's not like that, and he's not limited in that way. Verse 10, our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But, note the contrast, God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. This is saying that there's an end goal. This is why we run, why we endure, why we go through agony with a loving coach and a loving heavenly father. Because God all let enough difficulty and enough suffering, and enough persecution into our life to get these deep truths of his glory, to get these deep reality of his kingly nature down into our hard and stubborn hearts. For some of us, it won't take much, but he needs to drive out the pride. He needs to drive out the conceit and the complacency. And so often, it takes 
great amount of suffering and difficulty and opposition to our own ideas of what's best for us to get this truth down into our hearts. God is doing us good, it says, that we may share in his holiness. But that is hard because we live in a broken world that's stained by sin. It's not the way that God created it to be. But because of our rebellion, sin has tainted absolutely everything on the outside. That's why there's been war. That's why there's been millions of people who have died in the sake of freedom and good causes and bad causes as well. There's difficulties on the outside. It's a sin-stained world that we live in. But let's be honest, there's also difficulty on the inside. There's difficulty in our hearts. I am proud. I do think I know what's best for me and for everybody else. There's evil in my heart. There's a great capacity for evil and doing harm to you or even to myself. And there's only one way that God who designed this world so perfectly can get this truth of his glory down into our hearts so often. It's, it's like as C.S. Lewis says, he needs to use the suffering megaphone to get the truth that there is a greater authority, there's greater love, there's greater knowledge than me into my heart, and that's by leading us into suffering. It's the exercise of suffering. That's why we run the race. The Bible is full of these examples, um, because the nature of the human heart hasn't changed, but here's one. His name's Joseph. It's in the first book of the Bible. Joseph was the apple of his eye for his father, Jacob. Jacob loved Rachel, his wife. He doted on her. He obsessed on her. And when she died, that affection went from his wife, Rachel, to his son, Joseph. But here's the problem. Joseph was one of 12. And so it was favoritism to the max. But God was at work in the most amazing way in his life. God was in control to drive out the pride that was in young Joseph's heart. He was an arrogant young man. Conceited, you could say. And so what did God do? He used the jealousy of his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. He used the lust of a woman who was his boss to get him thrown into jail. God used this external suffering and brokenness and bad choices of humans to really go to work on Joseph, but not on the outside, but in his heart. External brokenness and internal brokenness as well. And so right at the end, we know this verse quite well, but it's so true. Let me remind you of it. Joseph who's been through so much suffering, so much difficulty, is a changed man by God's hand. And so he says to his brothers, you meant it for evil. Your plans were evil. You want to get rid of me. But you know what? God intended it for good. It's Padilla. God who loves us, not just as a coach, but as a father. He's the best pediatrician ever. And he loves us and he'll do whatever is needed to get this great truth down into our hearts. And if you don't see the hardships that you face in that context, as God is a loving coach, and God is a loving father who disciplines us for our good, then you're always struggling life. We're in a race. That's why we should be running it. Here's how to run it, lastly, quickly. Here's how to run it. What should we do? When suffering comes, how do we, how do we handle it? What should we be doing? Two practicalities and one fuel. Two practicalities, one fuel. Number one, here's the first practicality, humility. Humility. 
When you are facing hardships, it's very easy to forget that God is your loving Father because you cannot, you can never, 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 never see as a teenager when your parents have said to you, again, you cannot go to that place or you're grounded for this reason or you cannot do this. You, are you, no one ever sees that you say, yeah, oh, thank you, I know what you're doing. You want me to make good decisions. No one ever says that because you can't see it, can you, when you're there? It takes 20 years, 30 years, 40 years before you see, my mum and dad love me. The person who adopted me loved me and made great decisions for, the pe- for me. The people, who's, people who fostered me, they cherished me. It was hard. I couldn't see what they were doing at the time. But man, did they love me? And when you see that, you can say thank you. That's humility. But that view that you can never see at the time, that requires you to have a conviction of a heavenly father who knows more than you do whose ways are not your ways. I can very rarely see purpose in suffering. It's very difficult when you seek to minister people in pain. I can't see it. I'm like the teenager. So the only way to get through it is a humility that says, God, I cannot see what you're doing, but I trust you. Because this passage in the whole of the Bible says that you are a good and a loving father. And we need to be reminded of that at this time, I think. Humility before God means you can, we can say, I can't see what you're doing. I don't see everything. I'm confused. I have tears on my cheeks because I don't know what you're doing in this situation. But I trust you because you can see the end from the beginning. I don't get it, but I know you do. It's humility. Here's the second thing. Practicality. Obedience. Obedience. Did you notice verse 1, verse 2, verse 3... Verse 7, 1, 2, 3, and 7, there is a word that comes up. It's the word endure, keep going. Well, actually, it doesn't quite mean keep going. It means uh, to stand still. We, we take it as a keep going, resolute, my friends, once more into the breach, that kind of stuff. In this context, it's more stand firm, be immovable, be a person of conviction, have concrete in your shoes so you don't budge. It's that kind of word, verses 1, 2, 3, and 7. One of the things I spoke to someone this week who is facing suffering in a very real and a long-term way. One of the things we're tempted to do when you get hurt, when you are feeling low, is to retreat. Not just because we're English, we want to, you know, English man's his castle. Not just because of that, but in the human heart, when someone hurts you, when someone wounds you, when you're facing real suffering, the easiest thing to do is to just go home and shut the door. Don't want to get out of bed because someone may hurt me again or I can't face the future. Verses 1, 2, 3, and 7, this word endure reminds us that is the wrong thing to do. When you're facing suffering and you can't see the future, you're so tempted to retreat from the normal things that you know is right. You're tempted to not pray if you're a Christian. You're tempted to retreat from other people because they're going to hurt me. You're tempted to not open the Bible because, God, where are you in this situation? You're even, maybe you're even tempted to stop eating properly. Because the world's going out of control, but I can control that. Here are two keys, two practicalities when you face suffering. Be a person of humility. You cannot see a purpose in the midst of it, but trust God, who is your good Father, that there is, and you'll be able to see in the future, a divine tapestry that he's weaving. But secondarily also, be a person of obedience and endure. Be resolute. Keep doing 
what you know you should be doing. Don't neglect good habits when suffering comes. That's the worst possible thing you can do. There's a man called John Owen. I love his books. They're very hard to read. But uh, he has this wonderful image of sailing. If you're a nautical person, you kind of key into this. When a storm comes up, he says, John Owen, you're faced with two options. Number one, you're faced with the reality that you need to go on deck. I know the waves are huge. I know you're going to get absolutely soaked. We know your skin's going to get a battering. We know you're not going to be able to see quite where you're going. But you've got to put your hands on the steering wheel and you've got to put your hand on the rudder. Because if you don't put the hand in the rudder, you can get blown off. And here's the wonderful thing. If you get your hands on the thingy and get your hands on the rudder, because of the strength of the wind and the waves, you will get to where you're going quicker than you would without the storm. But you need to go on deck to do that. If you just stay beneath, you will find it, well, actually, you'll find you're at a different destination. Friends, be humble in the face of suffering, but be obedient in the time of suffering and endure. Keep doing what you know you should be doing. Make sure your hand is on the rudder. Do the right thing and the thing that you should know that you're doing. It's not all that you've got to do, but it's the minimum that you should be doing. Here's thirdly, here's the fuel. Notice verse 2. This is all technique, isn't it? Be humble, be obedient. But this is different. Here's the fuel, finally. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We've had two techniques, but this is the fuel. You don't get anywhere without fuel, do you? Fuel in your stomach, fuel in a a car. Here's the fuel. Fix your eyes on Jesus. When you're facing suffering, the end of chapter 10, we saw this. The only way you're going to get through it is not by disciplining yourself, not by just by doing a ritualistic habits. You need a fuel, and here's the fuel, here's the focus. Consider the Lord Jesus Christ as we gather around the table again. But here's the question that struck me this week. Why did Jesus come? He was willing. He was willing to pay the price. He was willing to die on the cross. But why did he come? Was it because he was lacking holiness? And so he wanted to top that up a little bit. Was it because he was lacking some glory? And so he wanted to top that up a bit. No, it wasn't. Couldn't possibly be those things. But in Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet looking forward to the coming of Jesus, when it describes the suffering that Jesus would go through on the cross, it says this, He shall see and he shall be satisfied. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Yes, to make the renown of his Father known throughout the world. Yes, so that his Father would receive more glory for this plan before the creation of the world to save a people. But there's the key that works together. It's not just for the glory of his Father. It's for us. It's for us. What is the only thing that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit did not have? Not that they were lacking. They were fully self-sufficient, fully enjoyable. What did they want most of all so that God's glory would be revealed? They wanted a people for themselves. And that's why the rescue plan had to happen. 
And when you face suffering, remember this. What was Jesus doing, verse 2 and 3? Fix your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, and then he scorned its shame, and then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, having finished his work. In Jesus' suffering, he was seeking you and me. It's the most wonderful rescue mission there has ever been. Not of captives behind enemy lines that need a halo drop to rescue them. This is even greater than that. I say that very respectfully. God the Son coming to rescue you and me. In his suffering, Jesus was seeking us. And he simply and profoundly says this. Friends, when you face suffering, seek me. Seek me. Seek me.